This is Sine from Investing Mastermind Podcast. Today's episode is the second out of two episodes about a Wall Street Journal interview with Charlie Munger. And this episode was recorded prior to Charlie Munger passing away on November 28, 2023. So keep that in mind when listening to the show. Now, Michelle will start it off with this episode. Sina and I are back with a part two of Charlie Munger's interview answers in a recent Wall Street Journal article where a journalist talked with him for two whole hours and shared some of the highlights of that. So perhaps, you know, I would love to get a full recording of whatever they discussed, but I'm not sure if the Wall Street Journal will release that. But in the meantime, we'll share some of our reflections on what they did share in this article. So I know we left off talking about how Charlie Munger has led a mostly frugal life despite being a billionaire, which is not like most people, like most billionaires don't live as frugally as Charlie Munger, who brags about getting $7 flannel shirts at Costco. So it's kind of funny, but, you know, you I guess part of their enduring appeal, both Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger, is the fact that they can relate to everyday people. And I think the world would probably be a lot better of a place if if more super rich people behaved like Charlie and Warren. Yeah, because what we also talked about in the last show is that, you know, what we see oftentimes from people on social media, but also from fund managers is that, you know, living large is the thing to do. And I think, you know, it creates a lot of frustration for people. And maybe that's something, you know, we should talk about in another show about, you know, how that potential dream, the American dream might actually look a little bit different on social media than what it actually is. And it's the same thing here where they discuss fund managers. It's definitely a perception. And I think it's been a perception for many years. Like there's a book, Fred Schwett, Where Are All the Customers? Yachts which is all about these fund managers have big yachts, but where are all the customers' expensive yachts, right? So as a customer in some of these management firms, of course, you want to have your money grow, but, you know, oftentimes customers' yachts are are not as big as the fund managers. So the next question, it's about if government regulators should change like Amazon and Google, because the government says that they have monopoly power. And yeah, Google is facing an antitrust case. In your opinion, should the government break up any of the big US tech companies? And what Charlie Munger says, kind of short, is I don't think it's a good idea to break them up and it would go against capitalism. What's your opinion on that, Michelle? Well, I mean, it seems that they have to be doing something right. And the fact that our few big tech are really pulling up the indexes, like the majority of people's returns are coming from the mostly big tech stocks in the S&P 500, like the Apple and Google and Amazon and Microsoft. Some of those are the few big winners that Charlie is talking about. So in, in this sense, like he said, it's okay that they've got their little niches, even though they're, they're not so little, they're, they're kind of pretty dominant. Like, you know, most people don't have many options of, you know, where they might get their phones. Like your your phone is either going to be an Apple or Samsung most of the time. And your search engine you use is probably Google most of the time. Like 
I don't know how many people use some of the alternatives, even though I know chat GPT is starting to be something people use as an alternative, but you know, most of us have either MacBooks or Windows PC computer. So, you know, even though there could be some arguments that the government is trying to rein in some of the power of the big tech, Charlie thinks it's okay that we have a few big winners by accident and that they're probably important for America's national interests as well. Like instead of weakening our strong big tech companies, it's in our better interest as a country if we're continuing on this capitalistic model to have some of these really important strong companies like they are the pride and joy of American innovation. And we can see what happened in China where the Chinese government was, you know, telling tech companies, oh, no, you can't grow too large. You can't grow too big. You have to keep to your own niche where some of these Chinese giant had to sell off some of their divisions, some of their stocks in other companies in order to actually follow suit from the Chinese government. And it actually impacted the Chinese economy quite a lot and also the Chinese stock market. So if regulators look towards China, they can see, okay, maybe you know what they did isn't the right solution. And I can also remember tech giants or analog tech giants from, from many years ago, like Xerox and Kodak which I would say were monopoly, monopolies at their, at the time, Xerox with their copying machine and Kodak with the camera. You know, they were giants as well many years ago, but we all know what happened. And we, of course, we don't know, maybe Amazon, Google, and Apple is going to continue for hundreds of years in the future. I'm not saying that it's going to go like, you know, it did with Xerox and Kodak. I'm just saying that you know, just because you're a giant and have a monopoly for some time doesn't mean that your business model is sustainable. So in order to actually, you know, for the government to to change something, I think it's, yeah, it's definitely risky to do that also because things change all the time. That's my opinion. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, maybe the government doesn't need to intervene so much because at the end of the day, people still do have plenty of commerce options. Like you don't have to buy your groceries and all of your everyday goods at Amazon. Some people might just be doing it out of the sheer convenience and taking advantage of their prime membership to get the, you know, next day or two day shipping. And, you know, that's just what they value more instead of going to their local shop. And that's why Amazon keeps getting bigger and why maybe some smaller mom and pop shops could be closing their doors. And, you know, that could just be what society is valuing. And for better or worse, it, it could be contributing to some of these, you know, what's perceived to be monopolistic power. But in Amazon's defense, they're saying people have plenty of options. We're not the only retailer selling these things. Like people could go to Target and Walmart and their local hardware store or whatever. In some ways, like you can see how the government might just be trying to check their power. Like maybe it's it's just trying to make sure that they're not taking advantage or taking over completely, which I don't think they are. I think people still have plenty of retail and other options that Amazon hasn't completely taken over yet. And it also, you know, in my opinion, it created uh, opportunities that weren't there before. You know, people who didn't want to live in the city can now start their own little Amazon business away from, you know, the big cities out in the country, and they can still 
run their business from there, you know, maybe have storage opportunities out there. So, you know, there are some good things that came out of it as well, or the companies might be, you know, using Amazon in some way to, to build their business. So even though, you know, we might see areas and of course, you know, that's sad if you had a grocery store and now it's closing, but hopefully, you know, you have other opportunities that you can jump on and, you know, use some of that expertise you had from running a business into, you know, opening a new business and actually following evolution and, and doing something new. I know it's it's kind of, you know, mean and, and tough to say that, especially, you know, if you lost your business and as a business owner, you know, of course, I would definitely not like that scenario. But what I'm saying is, you know, there are opportunities out there to still grow your business and even do it in rural areas. And that wasn't really that much of an opportunity before we kind of saw that people have to move away from from rural parts of, you know, the country. And now they can move back and, and start a new business and actually ship things out from, from there. So the next question is always interesting. And the journalist asked if there's anything you've learned recently from the books you've read. And I wish he would have mentioned a book that he had read recently, but unfortunately he doesn't. But I would definitely love to read some more of what he's reading. Uh, instead, he answers, you know, that he's learned a little something from every book that he has read and that in order to be smart, you have to read books and that he's been reading books since he was six years old. That That's his answer. For me personally, I also read a lot of books and, you know, it's within a wide range of, of different things right now. I'm very interested, of course, in business since I started my, my own business. So I am recently read The E-Myth by Michael E. Gerber that was recommended to me. And um, great book. I learned a lot about business. And if you're a business owner, I really recommend it, even if you're a leader. I would recommend it too, because I thought when I was reading the book, oh my goodness, I could have used this as a you know leader in my corporate career. So I, I highly recommend that book for sure. It's, it's a great book, but I also read self-development books. I really love Mickey Singer, Michael A. Singer, The Untethered Soul, and some of his other books that, you know, where it's very much around, you know, letting go and not being stuck in in the past or being stuck in the future for that matter but living here and now and i think it's very beautiful i really want to achieve that beautiful state that that he's talking about so um so that's some of the the books i've read recently that i really enjoyed and and i recommend you guys to listen to it's not investment books but uh but it's okay to also read something different than investing all the time how about yeah. you michelle for sure. And one of the books that I've read lately is also not really investing related, but uh, I'd seen a book review in the Wall Street Journal about this book called Generations by a psychologist or psychology professor named Gene Twenge. And in the Generations book, I learned a little bit more about millennials. And one of the myths, speaking of myths, that she helps to dispel is a lot of millennials think we're broke and we're not earning that much compared to prior generations, but she actually has written that in contrast to what a lot of us think, millennials are earning more than prior generations did at our age. But some of that has to be a little bit qualified because 
let's say during the silent generation or maybe earlier on in some of the baby boomer generation, maybe some people still had the luxury of having just a single earner household because she brings up how millennial households are earning more than prior households and prior generations. So, you know, you I, I wish she would have teased this out a little bit of sure millennial households are earning more income, but could that be because there are two earners instead of only one earner compared to prior generations? So that even though it's interesting, sure, we could be making more, but it wasn't explained that if it were due to having primarily two earners in a household compared to prior generations. So interestingly, yeah. that might be something that supposedly we as millennials could be earning more than prior generations, but take that with a bit of a grain of salt, however. Yeah, I would love to discuss that further. I really enjoy also talking about generations and cycles. So, you know, it could be something we would dive into in another show, actually, you know, about the American dream. And I also really, in in that regard, I want to read that book, but I also want to recommend The Fourth Turning, Neil Hove and uh, William Strauss, I believe, are the authors of that book. And it's it just gives you great insights to, you know, generations and also the economical landscape that each generation is actually facing because, you know, their thesis is that it's cycles over and over again. It's not a one static line, but we're living our lives throughout hundreds of years. It's a cycle that just happens over and over again, basically, or 80 years, I believe it is. I think they fine-tuned it recently. If you enjoy reading, go pick up the books that we recommended here. I'm definitely going to pick up that book, Michelle, and, and read that. It sounds super interesting. Yeah, it's good to learn about the different generations and how we can better get along with each other. Like ultimately, you know, it's interesting to learn things about your own generation, but also how do we work better with each other, like for working with baby boomers and also Gen Z and what's important to each generation generally. So another question to wrap up today's podcast with that the article covered was you've spoken about the importance of psychology and in investing. Is there a cognitive bias that you think is particularly significant in the markets today is what the journalist asked of Charlie. And he reflected that there are lots of cognitive biases that are very significant. And he's saying, you know, a lot of people tend to overrate their own intelligence and skills in deciding what to do and what not to do. And that's definitely something to kind of let yourself think about of how you make decisions and how would you qualify your own abilities in terms of, you know, how good your decisions are? So ultimately, this is a big judgment call in people's human psychology. What I thought about was back when I was a leader in the corporate world, I at some point, I actually created a spreadsheet, a tool that would help me to not be biased with, you know, when I had interviews with candidates. Because research shows that within the first seconds, five seconds of meeting someone, you already have an opinion about them. So it's like immediately. And it helped me tremendously because what that spreadsheet helped me with was to identify how well candidates was actually answering the questions and, and was answering sort of correct. Now, you know, there might, you might not have a correct answer, but do they know what they're talking about? And it actually helped me go beyond 
what I could see on the screen, like oftentimes these interviews were online. So the opinion was made of, you know, how is their voice? What do they look like online, et cetera? And instead actually looking at how well they answered the question. So I'd done some reflection work before the interviews to say, okay, this qualifies a good answer on this, not like these are the exact sentences they have to say, but, you know, someone who knows a lot about this area would cover some of this. And uh, and it really helped me a lot as a as a leader in looking at, at candidates differently and actually listening to what they were saying and not, you know, just looking at how they went about the interview. Charlie Munger is also known for talking about the La La Palooza effect. And what that means is that, you know, you can have one bias and then you might actually be aware of, okay, I'm biased right now, but there's a lot of biases in play, in effect at the time, you're likely to not know that you're biased. And that's the La La Palooza effect that that he's talking about. It's it's one of those Charlie Munger words. <laughs> yeah, the La La Palooza effect is definitely interesting and it's covered in the psychology of human misjudgment speech that he gave. And that actually is something that I'd want to uh, talk about with you more. So maybe we can read that transcript or you might even be able to watch it online of being able to see Charlie delve into a lot of these human cognitive biases. And he attributes a lot of his success to avoiding committing these acts of misjudgment. So if you can avoid making similar mistakes to others, you're bound to be more successful. So what do you think about that, of discussing that Lollapalooza effect that you just said, as well as some of these other principles that Charlie has talked about in that transcript? Yeah, I think it's a, a great idea to do that because, you know, there's so much interesting content in in that Lollapalooza effect, Lollapalooza effect. Also, you know, there are so many biases out there. And for example, you know, Charlie Munger has recommended Dr. Robert Cialdini, who wrote the book Influence. And in that book, Cialdini writes that we're only correct 80% of the time when we say that we're 99% sure. So, you know, it's one of those biases where there's an optimism bias or something like that, where you've probably heard something, someone say, I'm almost 100% sure but, you know, it turns out that they're, you know, about 80% right when they say that. And, you know, another bias could be social proof, where we tend to believe what people around us believe. And then, you know, if you hear something that somebody else say, you're going to start saying it. And then all of a sudden, it's true. Like one of the things that I hear a lot is that low risk equals low reward in the stock market and high risk equals high reward. It's some of those things that, you know, a banker might say, or, you know, if you want a retirement fund, you can choose between low risk, you know, investments or high risk investments. But for example, in the low risk investment pool for years, they had bonds, which at that time, you know, it's definitely not high risk, but it's just, you know, why would you even invest in that when you have so low interest rates? That's not even that that's terrible. But and... the irony with that, Sina, is that even though people generally think of bonds as being low risk, they actually could turn into high risk because a lot of people, like especially elderly people who think like, oh, I'm going to put my money in a safe place, like a bond mutual fund. 
they paid higher prices to go into that fund. And now a lot of those funds have been going down in price because with newer bonds coming out that give higher yields, it makes the value of older bonds that were maybe only giving one or 2% worth less. So the irony is we're talking specifically about being in a bond fund. So a bond fund has actually become higher risk, even though you thought the bonds in and of themselves should have been lower risk, but that's completely turning a lot of that Wall Street or conventional investing mumbo jumbo on its head. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I'm I'm sure a lot of listeners out there have heard about this. Oh, you know, when, when they talked about what to invest in for retirement, oftentimes that's, you know, what they say. And it's just something I reflected on recently because I had a client who said, well, you know, the bank said that this was very, very low risk and, and then it would also be low reward. And I thought, well, low risk does not equal anything about reward. It could be terrible reward or good reward. It's it's like, you know, we invest way low risk, but our rewards are high. We choose quality companies and we do a lot of work, which makes it low risk what we're doing. But then what we see over time is, you know, a quality business will yield a, a great return. So, you know, it's just one of those things where, you know, we created a social proof that everybody is saying that. So everybody believes it. Right. So that's definitely a bias talking about bias. Mm -hmm. All right. Do you have anything to say before we end the show? Anything, you know, to to wrap up this discussion about Charlie Munger? Anything? Any last words? Yeah, I think maybe, you know, continuing on with the Charlie Munger theme of life lessons we've learned in honor of his upcoming 100th birthday, something yeah. that maybe we can keep doing. And I think it would be great to delve into the psychology of human misjudgment some more. So hopefully our listeners will also have a chance to read some of that in the meantime, and we'll cover that in a future episode. Great idea. Awesome. So till next time, everyone. If you enjoyed the show and found the content informational, we would be super grateful if you would leave us a review and follow us wherever you get your podcasts so you automatically get new episodes in your feed. We publish a new show every Tuesday. The contents of the Investing Mastermind podcast are for educational, informational, and entertainment purposes only. None of this is investing advice, and if you need help in your personal situation, please consult with a professional.